Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Local news is disappearing from many parts of the United States. Since 2004, about 1,800 local newspapers have closed. In just the 11 years from 2008 to 2019, the percentage of people who said they got their news from local papers fell from 40% to 19%. During that same period of time, newsroom employment also halved. And Americans largely aren't aware of this dynamic. In 2018, 71% of Americans told Pew that their local news media was doing well financially. That's despite the fact that only 14% said they had paid for local news in the past year. Today, we're gonna talk about what happens when local news goes away. And we'll look at it from two perspectives, both the on the ground story of the decline of one local paper and new research that suggests declining local news can contribute to decreased participation in local government and increased polarization. Here with me to do that is staff writer at The Atlantic, Elaine Godfrey. Her latest story is called, What We Lost When Gannett Came to Town, We Don't Often Talk About How a Paper's Collapse Makes People Feel. Less connected, more alone. Welcome, Elaine. Thanks for having me. Also here with us is political science professor at George Washington University, Danny Hayes. His recent book is called News Hole, The Demise of Local Journalism and Political Engagement. Welcome, Danny. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's begin with the numbers. This is 538 after all. Danny, the basis for your book is an intense quantitative study looking at the decline of local coverage and its impact on local communities. What did you find? So my co-author Jennifer Lawless and I undertook a study for several years where we looked at about 200 local daily newspapers across the country. These are large regional papers like the Dallas Morning News, as well as smaller papers like the San Angelo Standard Times, where I was a journalist back in the late 90s and early 2000s, and how their coverage of local politics has changed over the last 20 years. A lot of people know the kinds of statistics that you mentioned about newspaper closures. Our focus is actually on daily newspapers that have not closed, in part because very few daily newspapers have actually completely shuttered. But what the story of, of local news across the country is that there's just a lot less reporting about local government, whether that's mayors, city councils, county commissions, school boards. And we show that over the course of the last 20 years, the amount of local reporting in local newspapers across the country has been cut roughly in half by about 50%. It obviously varies from paper to paper, but on average, that's the decline. The consequence of this, and we show in a variety of analyses, is that Voter turnout in city elections or municipal elections, county elections has declined over time. Americans now know less about their local elected officials. Just to give you one example, in polling in 1966, about 70% of Americans could name their city's or town's mayor. But by the time we get to 2016, we conducted a survey to basically replicate that. We found that that was below 40%. Similarly, 83% of respondents in a 2019 survey we did couldn't even offer the name of their local school superintendent. So we connect the declines in local news coverage to these declining measures of political engagement and show that across the board, one of the explanations for declining political engagement at the local level has to do with these pretty catastrophic collapse of the local newspaper industry. I want to dig into correlation versus causation a little bit more. But before we do, Elaine, you tell the story of the decline of the local paper in Burlington, Iowa, in your recent piece. It's called The Hawkeye, the name of the paper. Did you see what Danny was describing? Yeah. What surprised me was 
people were interested in local news and they were still seeking it out. They just didn't have a reliable source of information to get it from. I mean, the Hawkeye still exists, obviously. It did not disappear, but it is not covering the kind of local stuff it used to. It still covers local races, but just in a very limited way. People have really turned to Facebook to talk about local politics, local laws, local ordinances. And I went through all these Facebook pages. There's three from my town that purport to be news sites, news pages. And I read all of these threads where people were arguing about the mayor's race and swapping potentially incorrect information about it with one another. There's 16,000 subscribers to this one news page on Facebook. The Hawkeye now has like 7,000 or something. So like a lot of these people are getting their news about local politics from Facebook. They're not getting it from the newspaper and they're getting it from people in these comments that where it may or may not be correct. My reporting was focused on how a lack of local news ends up making people feel like they don't know what's going on. And I think that politics is obviously a huge part of that. Digging into that specifically, you know, if we rewind a little bit, what role has local news traditionally played in American communities? Local news has played a huge role. It is the central source for information of all kinds, political news. It served as a watchdog for local government, police, but also local goings-on about town. What are your neighbors up to? What do your neighbors think about X political issue? What are they arguing about in the paper? It's been this huge platform for people to interact with, meet each other through, empathize with each other through. It's been everything. Like local events going on, like the teddy bear picnic that's happening or the heritage days downtown happening. The thing that I found most intriguing as, you know, when I was growing up reading the paper, which I did not read it as religiously as my dad did, but I I used to read the opinion section because it was local writers who I knew arguing about local stuff. Sometimes they argued about, you know, national stuff, the Iraq war, global warming, whatever. But they would also argue about like, The library. Should the people who lived in the suburbs of Burlington have access to the Burlington Library? And that was like, I mean, that's really important. That actually affects people. And that's the kind of thing that you lose when you lose local news. They come to Facebook and they're different on Facebook, right? They're not vetted. There's not any sort of policing of facts. Anyone can say whatever they want. So before we go any further with this, I do want to say I love local news just as much as the next journalist. But when you cover... American society and politics, you often hear things framed as this one thing is poisoning American politics, like gerrymandering is what's causing America to break apart, or cable news, or the two-party system, or Facebook, or any number of other things. And so I have to wonder, how much is local news alone contributing to our current political dynamic compared with the myriad other ways our society has changed in the past 20 years? How can you draw a straight line from the decline of local papers to people aren't participating in local government. I completely agree with your characterization, which is that there's a lot of factors that go into declining levels of participation in city elections or political engagement at the local level. The changes to the media environment are one factor, and we characterize the effects that we identify in the book as modest. These are not the only things. So you can imagine there's a lot of trends that have happened over the last 30 or 40 years that might reduce Americans' engagement with local politics, their interest in local elections. 
One of those is just changes in the organization of society. Suburbanization, the decline of machine politics in cities over the last half century is another factor, right? When you don't have political machines that are mobilizing people to participate, that certainly is going to reduce people's engagement with local politics, especially in big cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, and so forth. So that's obviously a factor that's not connected to the local news environment. There's also been a rise in what political scientists refer to as nationalization, right? The people's orientation toward politics is so focused now on the presidency and what's happening in in Washington that their attitudes about local politics or their interest in local politics is diminished in part because they're so focused on what's happening elsewhere that is obviously a lot in many ways, more entertaining and engaging and outraging than what they see at the local level. So they're drawn to that. So those are factors that are separate from the news environment. At the same time, it's pretty clear that, at least to our reasoning and and to the evidence that we present in the book, is that news is making an independent contribution to those trends. And one way we see that is simply that even if you look at the same individuals over time, you have panel data where you can follow the same people from election to election, you can hold almost everything else constant. That is their education levels, their income, their participatory inclinations, the kinds of things that do predict their engagement in local politics. And as you follow those people and you track changes in the local news environment where they live, you can see that there's a strong relationship. And so that gives us further confidence and among a variety of other evidence in the book, that this is a causal story. It's not the only causal story. And as an academic, I get to say that it's a multi-causal world. And of course, one explanation is not the only factor. But the biggest change to the civic life of communities in the last half century is almost inarguably responsible at some level for changes in engagement at the local level. That's totally right. And as I was reporting this story, And I went to the archives of the Burlington, Iowa Public Library, my library growing up. I pulled out newspapers from the same month, different years over a decade, and just watched it get, especially since 2016 when it was purchased by Gatehouse, watched it get skinnier and skinnier. And as I'm flipping through it, it eventually has become a sort of paper with two local articles on the front and the rest is syndicated. So it's columns from the Washington Post, stories from everywhere, like a pullout section that's about how to grill vegetables from like a writer in Florida. You can see how people's media diet has changed from local news to just mostly national news. And so even if you're, you know, a person who wants to read local news and you get the paper, you can't, you don't have it. That's just like not an option for you. As I mentioned in my piece, like you're reading about Marjorie Taylor Greene, even though like what Marjorie Taylor Greene has to say doesn't really affect you in Burlington, Iowa. And I, I think a good case study here is my own dad, who used to be so up to date on local politics and local issues. And he was so opinionated and had just like, he knew everything. He was so in the know. He's on a Facebook. So he's like not in the know now because he reads the Hakka and he doesn't get as many stories, but he's really in the know on national issues because that's all he has to read. So he'll call me and he'll have a thought on banning Dr. Seuss or whatever. It's so easy to see that transition that people are making, whether they want to or not, towards national news. And that, I guess, is the nationalization that you're talking about. You know, what's interesting about that is that what you just said really gets at an important point about the causal relationship here, which is, I mean, you're describing a situation where consumers like your dad are moving away from local news and to national news outlets for a variety of reasons. 
entertainment is one of them. There's just something that draws us when we see these kinds of outrageous behavior by politicians. And and so the question becomes like, are these declining levels of engagement in politics? Is that just because consumers are selecting out of local news sources and that's what's leading them? Or is it that the actual coverage itself is getting worse and, and isn't providing them as much information? The argument that we make in the book is that it's both. Dan Hopkins, who's a contributor to 538, wrote a great book called The Increasingly United States about the nationalization of American politics, argues that the selection factor, that is consumers leaving local news, is probably a bigger contributor than changes to the local news environment. Our data suggests that the local news environment itself has an independent effect, but it's absolutely true that some people are not engaged in local politics, not because their local newspaper has changed, but because their own media diet has changed independently. And so just to Galen's point, there are obviously multiple factors at play. And I think that as social scientists and as journalists, it's incumbent upon us to acknowledge that there's a lot going on and these dynamics are kind of cyclical. But there does seem to be, um, and I think if you talk to people who read local newspapers and have done so their whole lives, there's a real disappointment in these communities about the information that they have access to that is so different from what most of them had access to 20 years ago and certainly 30 years ago. Yeah. And going along with this nationalization, you track in the book participation in local mayoral races. For example, you know, we're going to have a mayoral election in New York City where I live this fall. I expect very few people to participate, but that's in part because it's not a competitive election. The nationalization in politics has in some ways made the city and many other municipalities and regions across America so politically homogenous that our elections aren't competitive. And so therefore, there's doesn't feel like there's that much at stake. And so there is a lot going on here, as you mentioned. But Danny, in your book, you are able to draw this connection between a decline in local news coverage and a decline in political participation. I'm curious if this goes a step further. Do we know that municipal government is working worse because it's less accountable? Are we seeing that local people in power who might have been held accountable 40 years ago through the local paper are not being held accountable today? No, I don't think we know that. I mean, the inferences that we make in the book and the conclusion of the book are that declining participation levels and declining levels of coverage of local government are going to be bad in the long run for local government because you've got less accountability, presumably, for elected officials. But it's absolutely true that we don't know that for sure. The best evidence, I think, for this is that there's some, been some research suggesting that in places that have lost local newspapers, the bond rates that local governments pay are higher, suggesting that local government officials are not getting as good a deal for their communities as they could otherwise. I think there's some questions about the robustness of that finding, in part because newspaper closures themselves have been primarily concentrated among weekly papers, which are, of course, valuable sources of information, but in many ways, they're not the workhorses of local government coverage. Those are daily newspapers, and, and we haven't seen many of them close. We've just seen them shrink. So I think it's still an open question. And you could imagine that in a world without the kind of local news infrastructure that was with us for the entirety of the 20th century, that perhaps there are other mechanisms of, of accountability that could emerge, whether that's activists or interest groups or political parties or other citizen organizations that can emerge to try to make the kinds of efforts to serve as a watchdog in local government. However, it's hard to imagine exactly how that would work in a world where engagement with local politics is becoming more and more narrow. And I think the risk that we run is that 
regardless of however those accountability mechanisms emerge as the local news environment changes. The prospects of more equality and participation are probably reduced because there's a lot of research that shows that one of the things that reduces inequality and participation is information. But if information is increasingly in in scarce supply, that kind of equal representation is probably going to be more elusive. So that's a very long answer to your question, which is just no. But I think it's a really important next step for research to go beyond the connection between news coverage and citizens to news coverage citizens to the performance of local government. And I will add, I interviewed the mayor of Burlington, who actually worked for the Hawkeye and was laid off after Gatehouse bought it, later became the mayor of town. And he said when he won, someone came up to him and shook his hand and said, congrats, you can get away with anything. The paper isn't going to watch you very carefully. And he's a, he's a good guy. I don't think that he would uh, try to get away with things. But he said, reporters don't come to our meetings. Reporters don't talk to me. It used to be when he was at the Hawkeye, reporters would be in the mayor's office all the time, calling the mayor, calling city council members. He said, I don't get that. I'd love if reporters would call me. I'm ready. I am ready to answer their hard questions. And they're not doing that. So I think that that's, <laughs> you know, just a small example of someone noticing this change on the ground. This is something that national news runs into as well, which is the amount of investment that it takes a news organization to do the kind of coverage that can hold municipal governments accountable versus the payoff. So doing reporting, sitting through media, I I got my start in local news at Wisconsin Public Radio, which is an example of a broadcast area of news that is still doing well and has reporters going to school board meetings and multiple reporters sitting in the Capitol and showing up when there are protests against the police or there's an officer-involved shooting, for example. It takes a lot of time and investment to be present all the time so that you can report on something when a story does happen. It's much cheaper to publish commentary or opinion than it is to actually do that hard reporting, travel somewhere, drive in a car, go to where the story is. And so this is something that's happening on the local level. I also think it's happening on the national level and people consume the opinion. So I think that's an important dynamic to what you're describing. Anyone who has read local news knows that political coverage is only part of it. In fact, it may not even be the biggest part of it. For example, you know, I think back to my local paper, one of the most controversial aspects of it might have been that they published the age of every person who got a speeding ticket in town. Maybe that's its own form of accountability. You know, there were plenty of people who that was maybe the biggest punishment for speeding. But Elaine, you in your story get into this idea that the disappearance of local news makes people feel less connected and more alone. Can you talk about what that means specifically beyond just accountability in politics? Yeah, I noticed people didn't know these smaller details. I mean, I say smaller. They're the stories that when I was younger and read about in the paper, I was like, okay, like, I don't care about this library program. I don't care about this, you know, fluff piece about X person that my mom knows who was profiled in the paper. Like as a kid, I thought that was not groundbreaking stuff. But it turns out that's the stuff people read. That's the stuff people really like. And it's the stuff that keeps a community in the know about one another. 
We still have op-ed pages where people can write in, but it's shrunk. And there used to be this big page called the Hawkeye Happenings, which was all the local events that were happening. The garage sales, the cookie bake-offs, the Snake Alley Art Fair, which is like this big art fair we have every year. It would tell you when it was, where it was, all the stuff that you needed to know. And that's just shrunk to such a tiny little chunk of the paper. And they announced recently they're just getting rid of it altogether. And those things feel like the dumb little stories that you don't care about. But that's what people read. People are reading the paper for that stuff, for obituaries, for sports. High school sports is a huge part of the local paper's coverage area and and reason people read it. Everyone cuts out sports articles about their grandkids. And they're down to one sports reporter at the Hawkeye. He's going to all these different games across like nine counties. So it's those little things that, number one, make people focus on each other, think about each other as people. And number two, they make us feel like we matter. I remember, and I wrote this in the piece, reading the Hawkeye and reading all these local things and thinking, yeah, of course the paper would cover that. Like, this story really matters. It matters. It's about us. We're in rural Iowa, but we matter. And the fights we're having, the events we're having, they matter enough to be written about and argued about and printed in a paper of record. And so I think all of that stuff is so important to have that. And I wanted to write this piece because I hadn't ever seen someone make that point before. There was a really cool study written by Clyde Bentley, who was a media scholar, I think, at the University of Missouri in the late 1990s. I think the piece maybe came out in 2001. He did a really cool thing, which is that he got a local newspaper to give him the list of everybody whose newspaper didn't show up on their front porch and called the paper that morning to complain about it. And then he called them up before they got the paper re-delivered in the afternoon to ask them how they felt about missing the paper. And what he discovered is that the feeling that they had was like, a form of psychological trauma. Like they felt completely disconnected from this thing that was so important to them. And I think that that really underlies the importance of local newspapers. It creates a sense of place exactly the way that Elaine is describing. And I think it's just all the more reason to think about the ways that the disappearance of these institutions, or at least the shrinking of them, has the kinds of political effects that Jennifer Lawless and I have focused on in this book, but there's also sort of just a broader cultural effect that is likely to have that is going back to something, another conversation we were having, which is that this sense of local identity that you care about being from a place, that the place where you live is part of who you are, is something that's been declining in American politics. Dan Hopkins has shown this that as a function of nationalization, people care more about their you know, state or national identity than they do their local identity. And I think the newspapers are one reason for that. And you can it's pretty easy to trace a line from that local identity to engagement in local politics. So if people don't feel like they are part of the community or their community is sort of part of who they are, then that's just one less motivation for them to engage in politics in whatever form. Yeah, we talk a lot about trust and in institutions on this podcast and polling on that matter. And according to Gallup, 67% of Americans say they trust their local newspapers. And I think the fact that it's a lot more than politics and people see themselves in those papers is an important piece of that because only 49% of Americans say they trust national newspapers and only 40% say they trust news on the internet. And so if we are going to have faith in news media as an institution, it's perhaps most likely to happen on the local level. 
And to your point about understanding what's going on in the local community, I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, but if you talk to someone in your life who pays a lot of attention to national news, but may not be that involved in their community, they potentially have a really poor conception of what the reality is like on the ground. And I think polling even shows this, which is that people have wild misconceptions of crime and discord and only paying attention to national news can almost make you afraid of the world around you in a way that being grounded through local news won't necessarily. Now, local news has its own problems with crime reporting and, and all kinds of things and that's been documented. But I think maybe that's a dynamic as well. Well, and there's research, Joanna Dunaway, Josh Dar, and, and Matt Hitt, some political scientists have shown that the closures of newspapers decreases split ticket voting. So that is in places where newspapers have closed, people then in subsequent elections are less likely to vote for a Republican and a Democrat, for example, for Congress and president or, or Senate. And that's not exclusively about what you're describing, Galen, but it does suggest that the kind of affective polarization that is evident in American politics, where Republicans and Democrats see each other as the enemy, is exacerbated when you're not seeing the people around you, regardless of their party affiliation, as members of your same community. And if you pay attention to national news, that's not what you see. And when your local newspaper goes away, that's just one less source of exposure to that kind of community-oriented information. And I would add, too, that the staff, employees at a local newspaper, they live in the community. You know them. You know reporters as people. Their kids might go to school with your kids. So you probably trust them more just by virtue of actually being able to see that they're real people and, and recognize that they're living you know, normal lives. I talked to the opinion columnist. He was a famous in my town for being, you know, a super liberal opinion columnist in Burlington. And he would fire off these takes and he would go to Hy-Vee, our grocery store, and people would just yell at him or congratulate him for a great take. You don't have that if you're if you're just watching Fox News or you're just reading the New York Times. Like you can't argue with Charles Blow. Like you want to argue with the people that you know and that you trust to like respond to you or report on you in good faith. And I think that that's an underlooked, underconsidered piece of this because these are local jobs that are being lost. People in the press room, people who designed the paper, they're gone now at the Hawkeye. They're gone everywhere in a lot of places because those are the first jobs to be consolidated nationally or regionally. And that was what helped root a paper in a community. I want to talk a little bit about why local news has declined to the extent that it has. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. 
Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries, backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've spent a little time talking about what is happening. Local newspapers are disappearing, and in many cases, when they're not disappearing, they're being hollowed out. Staffing decreases, and that means that things that are happening in local communities, there's not coverage of the way there used to be. Why has this all happened? The internet. All right, the internet. Do you have? Do you also? Have, do you agree, Elaine? Do you have no. a one-word response? I think that's right. I would say the internet, but I would also say a big realization that I had when I wrote about the Hawkeye's decline was that it was profitable when it was bought by a hedge fund. While it was sort of a hedge fund, it's called Gatehouse. It was a company owned by a hedge fund, but when it was purchased, it still had excellent profit margins. So I think I had it in my head, and I think a lot of people do, that all newspapers were like really flailing around, not making any money, and hedge funds have sort of come in to like scoop up the dregs or whatever. But that's not the case. They're coming in to sort of squeeze out that profit because they're still profitable. So that's a big reason. Like I would say for my story, what caused the Hawkeyes decline was a particular hedge fund um, who needed to come in and make some money and pay off their debts and all that. But that's not to say that all newspapers would be thriving if it weren't for hedge funds. I think that you're totally right, Danny, that the internet plummeting ad sales, the rise of social media, all of that stuff has contributed. The news ecosystem is not the same. Yeah, and I was being a flip, obviously. <laughs> it's, it is more complicated than that. But I mean, you know, if you have to point to one factor, that's it. I mean, if you look at, for example, advertising revenue for local newspapers across the country in 2005, 2006, Advertising revenue is about $50 billion collectively for newspapers. But by the time we get to 2018, it's down to something like $27 billion. So, I mean, it's just a huge, a dramatic reduction. So what that means is you've just got less money coming in. You do what all local newspapers have done across the country, which is to shrink your newsrooms. I mentioned that I was a newspaper reporter in the late 90s and early 2000s at this paper called the San Angelo Standard Times in West Texas. I worked on a, a news desk that had, at the time, I think 10 reporters, including me. And I looked the other day and that newsroom, the number of news reporters is now down to three. It's very much the story that you told about the Hawkeye. And so you've got a situation where, faced with declining revenue, newspapers are shrinking their staff. They just can't cover the communities that they used to be able to cover or cover anything with the depth or breadth even that they used to. 
And so that's obviously a big part of the story. But I would say that beyond just the internet, it's also just increased competition from all kinds of other sources of information. Even before the internet, the emergence of cable television and more options for entertainment were hurting subscription levels for uh, newspapers even before the internet came in and blew up the revenue model. So it's the combination of competition and basically the disruption or the destruction of the geographic monopoly that newspapers traditionally had in their local communities. If you wanted to find out what was going on first thing in the morning, the only way you could really do that in your community was to subscribe to the newspaper and get it off your front porch. But now, obviously, if you want to find out sports scores or anything else or movie listings, there's lots of other places that aren't connected to your local community that are not your local newspaper where you can get that. And so it's just less attractive as a vehicle for information. When we talk about the decline of local news, are we only talking about newspapers or has local TV and radio declined and morphed as well? And I know that that is not the topic of the reporting and research that you've done, but do you have some information as regards other sources of local news? In the book, we consider the possibility. So one argument about the collapse of the local newspaper business is that in a world where information is easily accessible to people on their phone, on their computer, at any time, that the reduction of newspaper coverage shouldn't matter that much because people can get information from other sources. The most likely are other online sources like local news startups or more traditional outlets like local TV. And so we actually look at whether local television has, in the wake of the contraction of local newspapers, whether, for example, local TV news has kind of stepped in to offer more public affairs reporting. And basically, we find that there's no evidence of that. That is, local TV reporting of public affairs, which has always been pretty low because most of it's devoted to weather and murder, crime coverage, and sports, there's not very much political content about people's local communities in those venues. So that's not likely to actually help. Local news startups in some communities, mostly big cities in urban centers, there's been, you know, like a significant emergence of those. And some of those have been successful. But the problem is that they're concentrated in places where a large audience can develop, which is mostly coastal cities with large, educated communities. So they can't deal with the broader changes in communities all across the country. So our analysis is that those kinds of alternative forms for information aren't really doing very much to step in and kind of help boost information access where these local newspapers have left a hole. I'm really curious about that. My hometown and the surrounding area has no local television station. I don't think, I think for two hours, any direction, (laughs) there's no local TV. So we have like our news from the Quad Cities, which is in Iowa and, and Illinois. And local radio, as far as I know, everyone I talked to was like, oh yeah, like we can't get anything from local radio. They just read Hawkeye stories verbatim <laughs> on the air. Like they stopped doing their own reporting. They don't have reporters on our local stations anymore. Or the local stations have just become, you know, Ben Shapiro show outlets, that kind of thing. Aline, you mentioned a change in ownership at the Hawkeye. And I'm curious what that process looked like. Of course, we're talking about a broader ecosystem where the internet is making local news in many ways, and the shift in ad dollars is in many ways making local news less viable. How much do specific ownership decisions and consolidations have to do with this? And what specifically happened to the Hawkeye? 
So the family that owned the Hawkeye, they were called the Harris family, and they owned a lot of Midwestern dailies and weeklies, specifically a lot in Kansas. They were based in Kansas. And this has been the model, a family-owned local newspaper or local newspaper chain. There's always been corruption and bumbling idiots running the show in these families, but a lot of times they've been really successful too. Like they've been very benevolent rulers. So the Harris family, in the case of the Hawkeye, was very like, do your thing, do local news. X percent of the paper needs to be local. They didn't hover, as I say in my story. They were very, go do good local journalism. That's what this is for. And it comes down to luck, honestly, if you're going to get a family owner that has that attitude. And what happened here is that Eventually, I think it was like third or fourth generation of the Harris family said, we don't want to own this newspaper anymore, and we don't want to own most of our papers, so we're going to sell. And there was this huge discussion about should they sell to another family? Should they sell to Gatehouse, who was interested? And ultimately, they sold to Gatehouse. I know that the staff at the paper were all extremely disappointed because they thought that they would sell to another family, and hopefully that family would be nice and and take good care of it. But they all had seen Gatehouse's trail of bodies, (laughs) and they knew what was coming. But so they sold to Gatehouse, and Gatehouse came in and promised, you know, listen, we're not going to tear it apart and sell it for scraps. We're going to try and keep it going. And obviously, that didn't really play out. It is still going. But I think there are still successful models of, you know, the Cedar Rapids Gazette, which is just north of Burlington, Iowa, by about an hour and a half. It's a great little paper, and it's family-owned. It's doing really well. It's sort of a model here. Um, And it it used to be sort of like the Hawkeye's kid brother paper, and now it's just zoomed right past the Hawkeye because it has these sort of benevolent owners. And I'm curious also, Daniel, how ownership fits into the research that you did. Yeah, so we don't spend a lot of time in the book trying to analyze or pull apart differences among newspapers with different ownership structures, but I could say a couple things about that. So one is that There does seem to be a growing body of research from both political scientists and economists suggesting that the papers that are owned by private equity firms or other companies that don't have any connection to the community do seem to suffer more, have suffered more over the period of the decline than newspapers that are independently owned or owned by families. We have some anecdotal evidence of that in the book. As part of the book, we interviewed about three dozen reporters and editors at local newspapers all over the country, in addition to the the quantitative analysis that we focused a lot of the book on. And one of the editors that we spoke to was the executive editor of the Toledo Blade. And the Blade is an interesting paper because although, like every other local newspaper that we studied, it's seen a shrinking of its news hole, the amount of space available for editorial content, the amount of local news coverage that they offer is significantly less than it was 20 years ago. Their newsroom is a lot smaller, the same trends that we've seen elsewhere. But the decline in their local coverage has actually been less than many other communities. And so in talking to the editor, his explanation was that the Block family, which owns that paper, also owns the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, I believe, um, and some other papers, has been committed to journalism in the community. And that's obviously very different than a gatehouse or an Alden private equity firm that don't really care, that they have no investment. So the evidence suggests that there are some real systematic differences in the way that the newspapers change when they're bought by these companies. I will hasten to add, though, at the same time that the broad story, however, is not about ownership. The broad story is about the macro level changes to the economic model of newspapers. And so the analogy I use is that, you know, if you build 
two sandcastles on the beach, and one of them you really fortify. And you can think of these as, you know, like the independent papers. They've got a grounded in the community. They've got owners who want to commit to the journalism. And the other one is the private equity firm, Sandcastle, or, you know, like chain ownership. And a wave comes in from the ocean, both of them are going to be taken out. Now, maybe the independent paper one is standing a little bit more firmly, but they're both basically going to be more or less destroyed. And that's evident. You can see that, which is that regardless of the ownership structure, papers have suffered. So ownership is certainly an important component, but it's definitely less important than the other broader changes that have really led to a retrenchment in local newsrooms around the country. Elaine, you mentioned that in some sense, Facebook is filling the void that the decline in the Hawkeye has created. Is there anything else filling the void? Are people starting websites to cover local news? Are there local podcasts or newsletters? What else is stepping in to fill the void here? Yeah, and this is a great question because I want to plug them. The Burlington Beacon. So a guy named Jeff Abel, who was a reporter at the Hawkeye. And I'm not sure if he took a buyout or what his situation was, but he left and he started his own paper. He owns a comic book store. So he started his own paper from the game room of his comic book store and got another Hawkeye veteran, Will Smith, to come on and write. And he paid Will until very recently out of his own pocket. They didn't make any money. They just slowly built this product. And it was and is good. And they they started posting articles directly to Facebook, actually. So they launched this newspaper on Facebook. Now they have their own weekly print product and their own site where they put up all the articles. Um, They're making money now. I don't think that they're making a profit, but I think that they are actually bringing in money. And the people that I talked to for my story, I, I told them about the beacon and I said, what do you think? Is this sustainable? And almost all of them said, not really. I mean, it's great. It's a really good effort. If Jeff and Will are willing to keep doing this and not make a lot of money, but just operate like this for a long time, it would be a good service. But I I guess I don't really know how either of them would make a, a living doing this. But the sort of circumstances that would create a good environment for one of these pop-up papers like this, independent papers like this, would be a growing metro area. And Burlington, Iowa is not a growing metro area. But I think like Danny was saying, this kind of thing can work somewhere like LA, uh, New York, like these kinds of papers can survive because they have that educated, wealthier readership and people willing to invest in them and support them. And I, I think it's a hopeful sign, though. I think it shows that there's still so much interest in producing local news and getting it. I mean, they have subscribers. They have people in the community who are like, give me something. I can't read the Hawkeye anymore. Give me something. There's certainly demand for local news. There are people who want to know for all the reasons that you talk about in your article. People want to know what's going on in their community. So there's clearly some market. The question is just how big it is. And my colleague at George Washington University, Matt Heineman, wrote a great book a couple of years ago called The Internet Trap, in which he tries to explain how it is that Google and Facebook have basically consolidated all of the advertising revenue and traffic online. And other websites, including local news sites, have really suffered. And part of the problem is just that there's all kinds of advantages built in to these big sites and getting traffic to small local news outlets who don't have a lot of money and giant server farms to speed their sites up. They don't have recommender systems and algorithms that can serve up content to readers in a way to keep them on the site, to increase the stickiness of their site. 
puts them at a significant disadvantage. And so there's kind of twin problems. One is getting readers' attention initially, which is basically about how do you convince consumers that local news is something they should seek out? And then the second part is getting them to stay there and keep coming back once they're there. The third part of our book, after we tell the really gloomy story about changes to local newspapers and how that's affecting citizen engagement at the local level, the third part of our book is making an argument that in addition to all the supply side efforts to save local news, whether that's the Local Journalism Sustainability Act, which has some support in Congress that would provide some subsidies for local news organizations, whether that's philanthropic efforts, getting rich people to buy papers and prop them up, or the kind of like what you can think of as good citizenship as a model that's happening in Burlington of people just doing something as a service for their community, that if those efforts are never going to succeed in the long term unless there's audience demand. So what we've got to do is deal with the supply problem as well. How do we produce the journalism, but also how can we get consumers to pay attention? We have some experiments that we, we did over the course of a couple of years that suggest that you can, you can modestly increase people's interest in local news by reminding them about all of the things that local government does. People know that local government is really important to the quality of life. They know that it's an important part of the social norms of being a good citizen, but they don't think about it that often. It's not at the top of their head. So one of the arguments we make in the book is something that philanthropic organizations, a coalition of news organizations who wanted to come together could probably benefit from some kind of public service advertising campaign, reminding people about all the things that local government does, which indirectly might bring people back to local news because you've got to have the demand or else none of these efforts are really ultimately going to succeed. All right. Well, maybe a good place to end some ideas for how to reinvigorate local news. And, you know, I don't advocate for things on this podcast, but I think I can safely say, folks, go subscribe to your local paper. But let's leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining me, Elaine and Danny. Thank you so much, Galen. Thank you. Elaine Godfrey is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and Danny Hayes is a political science professor at George Washington University. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bidigary Curtis is in the control room and on audio editing. Nash Consing is on video editing, and Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.